Activists have proposed an Obama Center alternative that includes a flashy design they envision next to Washington Park. And I'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter Dennis Rodkin about news from the local housing market, including how home prices continue to rise. So even though we're booming, we're not booming as much as the booming cities, um, which is good news if you're worried about a bubble. Once again, looks like we're not there. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, July 29th. When it comes to a professional like your doctor or lawyer, you want someone who knows you well. Wintrust believes you should have the same relationship with your banker, someone you can call directly and know they'll understand your concerns. Thousands of local business owners called their Wintrust banker when they needed Paycheck Protection Program loans. They called, Wintrust answered, and helped more than 11,000 local businesses secure funding. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. Hello and welcome to Crane's Daily Gist Live, brought to you by Wintrust. I'm your host, Amy Guth, and I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, here to talk about news of the week from the local housing market. How are you, Dennis? I'm great, Amy. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Housing prices. Let's start there. You've written twice about that in the last week or so, about how housing prices continue to go up. This is why I say home prices are going up faster and faster all the time. Uh, In May, according to Case Shiller released in July, prices were up in the Chicago area 11.1% on single-family homes. In the previous month, they were up 9.9%. And if you go backward to September 2020, when this boom really started to kick in in their index, they were up 4.7%. So just between the the index for September and the index for May, home prices went from rising 4.7% in September over the year prior to rising 11.1% in May over the year prior. We've been seeing it go up about a percentage point per month. Uh, So essentially what we're seeing is home price appreciation is accelerating. It's getting, uh, it's really going fast. The other piece of that is the national comparison. Even with double digit price increases in Chicago, the first time since, or the highest since December, 2013, even so we were the 20th in the list of 20 cities in the national index. There were cities, um, Seattle, San Francisco, Seattle, San Diego, and Phoenix, where prices were up in the 25% range, again, compared to our 11.1. Nationwide, prices were up in about the, at about 16.8%, which according to the index is the biggest in their records going all the way back to the 1980s. Um, so even though we're booming, we're not booming as much as the booming cities. Um, which is good news if you're worried about a bubble. Once again, looks like we're not there. Exactly what I was going to say next. Anytime we start talking about a trend of rising prices, anything like that, immediately, I think a lot of the narrative goes to, okay, what signs do we need to look for for a bubble? Is that where we're headed? What are we doing? So I'm glad you mentioned that because I think that's exactly where a lot of minds go when we talk about this very thing. I mean, that's not to say that our home price growth won't slow down. But I mean, when you look at when you look at Phoenix, where home prices in May were up, Phoenix is the highest, and they were up 25, 25.4%, um, 25.9%. 
Imagine that. In May 2021, you were paying nearly 26% more than you were paying in May 2020. Now, the one thing I don't know is our prices did not go down in May 2020. They, they rose by only a little bit, but they didn't go down. So we're not comparing to a trough. I, I should say I didn't check Phoenix whether they went down, but that place is going nuts. Imagine how your affordability is just galloping out ahead of you. Um, the other thing, the other indicator I see for uh, to suggest that we're not as close to bubble territory as other cities are is um, in the Case-Shiller Index, Chicago prices are now at 2% below our 2006 peak, the highest point they've been at, they were at in the last uh, housing boom. But nation, so we're 2% below, two percentage points below, um, uh, nationwide prices are 38% above the old peak. So it looks as if our being behind the rest of the nation could, if things start to get, start to uh, slide, they wouldn't hear. And and by slide, I don't mean a massive decline like in 2007, eight. I just mean you start to see prices come down, come, uh, stop growing quite so quickly. Um, do you want to turn, now should we turn to Illinois? I, I may have spent too much time on Case Schiller. Well, I'm curious before we do though, what do you have a sense of what exactly is driving those particular cities? I mean, that number in Phoenix, almost 26%, that's so significant. What is it about Phoenix? Well, I, I, of course I focus on the Chicago market, so I don't know a lot, but we do know there, that though there are far more robust economies in places like San Diego, Seattle, and Phoenix where those prices are up so much. Um, unemployment didn't skyrocket quite as much in those states as in Illinois during the pandemic. Uh, and Phoenix is one of the, all three of those are some of those places you might have moved if you were untethered from a workplace. I mean, if you were in Chicago and realized you could work remotely, Phoenix is a great idea. Uh, so those are, those are a few that I can think of. But again, I know more about Chicago than about those other markets. Yeah. So, okay. To San Diego, where I have a house in Chicago, my sister has a house in San Diego, her home value is going up and padding her retirement account a lot faster than mine is. Right, right. Okay, so then let's look local. Let's talk Illinois. Yeah, so the, again, the Illinois data is for a later month. It's for it's actually for June because the Case-Shiller Index has a lot more math to do for a lot more cities, a lot more states, that sort of thing. Um, in Illinois, what, what we saw from the Illinois report that came out last week is that it was the 11th, June was the 11th month consecutive month when the median price of homes sold was up in double digits. It was up uh, 20%, 20.4% for the nine county metro area. That's not true of the city itself, but of the larger metro area. 11 months of double digit price growth, which is to say, if it happens again in July, then in August, we would be talking about double digit price increases on top of double digit price increases. And that, that would be, you'd be paying a heck of a lot more for a house in, that would be August, 2021 than in August, 2020. This is the median price of homes sold. That is, it doesn't necessarily mean that your home's value went up that much. Uh, but we're talking, when you look at the median in these reports, we're talking about the midpoint of thousands of homes sold. And we have no indication that can be warped if like all of a sudden everybody's buying $10 million houses or all of a sudden everybody's buying $100,000 houses. We don't have any indication that there is lopsided buying, which would warp the, the median price. So it's a pretty good barometer of where home prices are going. 
uh, and they, they're up in the double digits month after month for 11 months so far. That's so interesting. I think that is the reason why I'm always so interested in your kind of area specific breakdowns of areas where houses are doing really well or selling really fast or where inventory is really low. Because to me, that kind of shows you where this is playing out. Absolutely. I often get uh, reports from national sources that like talk about the Midwest. And I always say, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to use that because Chicago doesn't behave like all of the Midwest and Chicago doesn't behave like all the other big cities. The same is true. South Cook County doesn't behave like North Cook County. Flossmoor doesn't behave like Wilmette. Lincoln Square doesn't behave like Beverly. Um, it, it's really it's better to see the very, very local data, um, except for when we want to make these comparisons uh, to the to the national scene. Yeah. You also recently talked with uh, some boutique real estate firms um, about technology. Tell me what you learned there. Yeah, you know, this is sort of interesting. Once upon a time, the suburbs really, like when I was a kid and earlier, so in the 19th century, um, real estate, buying a house in the suburbs was often, you came out from the city uh, and you rode around in a big sedan with a real estate agent and looked at how, and the, the agent had a lot of cards for individual houses that were for sale. Obviously that has changed, but a lot of those boutiques that started out that way were still are still operating today. Uh, the reason I did the story on Compass, the, the news angle for the story on Compass is that Gagliardo, which is a firm in River Forest founded in the 1950s uh, by a woman and her son, was folded into Compass this month by that woman's grandson, her son's son, um, Andy Gagliardo. And he said it was because of technology. He said, I'm a little firm. Compass is a national firm that it's one of those that like it's a technology firm doing real estate, which is really where every part of the economy is now. It's a technology firm doing steel. It's a technology firm doing food, those kinds of things. So Compass has this gigantic technology package and a gigantic technology office. And what Andy Gagliardo uh, said was, I was always spending to keep up on the technology. I have, I think he said, I have one uh, marketing person and Compass has 50 or something like that. And so a lot of these little firms are folding into Compass. Uh, the other recent one, that one was Gagliardo's in River Forest. The other recent one was Griffith Grant and Lackey, which goes back four generations in Lake Bluff, Lake Forest. Some others have done it as well, Smothers in LaGrange. I also found some that haven't. There's a firm in Elmhurst called Reedy, J.W. Reedy, where they haven't done it, they are spending a lot of money on technology. They're doing what they can to keep up. Technology has really infused the real estate business. When I shop for a house, I'm, I do much of my, my first, possibly second and third rounds of shopping online. Um, I expect a response from an agent right away. Uh, the agents need to get their listings out on social media in the best ways possible. There are so many ways that technology has replaced that sedan and that box of file cards, um, and and we're already we're all fine with that, and that and it makes buying easier. But it means that the brokerages sort of have to evolve and and uh, get in on that game. And it seems as if Compass is making that easier for them. So the good news for Compass is they get, for example, in Gagliardo in River Forest, they get a footprint in River Forest that is established that has some brand heritage. You know, my mom, my my grandfather, whoever bought a house through Gagliardo. I know that name. We've always seen the Gagliardo 
name on Homes and River Forest. Now it says Gagliardo Group of Compass, but that brand equity is still there. So it works for them in that way. Yeah. What are the specific technology tools that these smaller boutique firms get from Compass? When they put in their listing, they can immediately configure it as an ad, like an online ad, a newspaper ad, though those are going away. Um, brochures are configured. I mean, it, it's a lot of it is just putting together the marketing materials in in sophisticated technological ways and ways that fit into the branding that that company has already created. At Properties is, is similar to Compass in that way. Um, you, we sign on and here's all this uh, all these um, formatted objects that you can type your information into. They also get advice on how to promote things on social media. Um, there are technology people who are available online all the time to help you with uh, all your prospecting and those kinds of things. A lot of it is the marketing materials, in particular, the digital stuff that you're going to run out online. Yeah. It, it, and it seems like it, be, it becomes like more plug and play there. Once you have that listing in, you can have access to all these tools. Yeah. If you're working with this with this big, sophisticated technological package, it's plug and play. And that would be one of the reasons um, these agents would prefer to go that way. Here at, here at my little boutique agency, we kind of have to figure it out. We have to figure it out each time. I, I mean, it also kind of points to how consumer behavior has changed, right? Like SNL even had a sketch about looking at Zillow or Redfin or something as a recreational thing, right? I'm sure 500 people sent you that sketch if you didn't see it, but, um, <laughs> you know, we get, one of them, I think I may have sent that to you also, but I, I think it's interesting how consumer behavior has changed where people are looking so, so much online before they even are anywhere near ready to have a conversation with a realtor for the most part. Oh, absolutely. That I, like I said, people do their first, second, even their third round. You can, you can, you know so much more about houses before you go to look at them. I said, it's got to be a decade ago um, when the internet was really starting to roll into real estate that I said, all you have to do now is go to the house to make sure it doesn't smell like cat pee because <laughs> you can find everything else out online. And, you know, I mean, uh, home buyers are pretty good at, at figuring out prices because they can do comps online and those kinds of things. So real estate agents uh, find that the, the consumer is more armed with information. And so obviously, if they want to be a step ahead of that and provide something to the consumer, then something like Compass, not that I'm endorsing joining Compass, but joining a company like Compass helps them get out, helps the agents get out ahead where they where they want to be. That's interesting, though. I, I think you're exactly right that everything seems to be like technology company that happens to also do real estate, technology company that does manufacturing, whatever. Yeah. I mean, that's just, I think, what so many legacy businesses, including our own, have had to kind of grapple with and, and figure out along the way, for sure. Oh, absolutely. All right. Let's talk about um, a Frank Lloyd Wright house. It's the only one, I think, in Hinsdale. And some preservationists are a little worried about it. Tell me what's going on. Yeah, this is an interesting house. It was built in 1894. Frank Lloyd Wright was 27 years old. He's just left Adler and Sullivan. He's not yet working in the style that people think of as Frank Lloyd Wright. He hasn't developed prairie style. He's doing really cool houses, but they're, for the time, conventional. Uh, what one preservationist said was he was still working in an East Coast style that he had learned from his first boss. So he builds this house, he designs this house in Hinsdale. Again, it was built in 1894. 
goes on later to do much more dramatic and innovative work. But this is the only one that he ever did in Hinsdale. It's it's coming up for sale. It's it's sort of on the private listing network, uh, not quite for sale, but coming soon. And the Frank Lloyd Wright Building Conservancy found out last week, alerted me and other media that it was being offered. Um, they felt that it was that the Frank Lloyd Wright angle was being downplayed, that it was primarily being offered as a teardown. I think you can you can argue that it wasn't primarily being offered as a teardown. It was being offered. That was one of the alternatives. The listing that I got, the the coming soon listing was eventually taken off at Properties Public Site, but I have a screenshot of it. And it does say this is an opportunity for rehab, for renovation, for expansion. Um, but it is also priced at essentially the value of the land. I worked it out. It, it's it's being offered or it will be offered at about $1.3 million, which, work, which works out to 43 uh, for the six-tenth of an acre lot. It works out to $43 a square foot of land. And buildable land in Hinsdale has been going at the $45 range in the recent months. So it's really being offered at land value. We've seen several Frank Lloyd Wright homes sell at land value. They haven't been demolished. It's just that people have gotten real bargain prices. The difference is, one, this doesn't look Frank Lloyd Wrighty, and two, it's Hinsdale, where there have been a lot of teardowns. In fact, just a few doors down, there is a multi-million dollar house that is a teardown, not of a Frank Lloyd Wright. It didn't replace a Frank Lloyd Wright house, but it replaced a vintage, early 1900s house. There are several in the vicinity, three, four million dollar houses. So if I'm a developer and I'm looking at this house, which is being sold as is, which it suggests that there are things that it needs. I don't know what they are because all it says is as is, but it might need uh, work on the utilities, foundation. We don't know. Um, if I'm a developer, I may determine that the the real game here is take this property down and put a $3 million house on it. There's no landmark protection on the house, so that could happen. It would be a real surprise if it did. It would be quite a turn of events. The last time a Frank Lloyd Wright building was demolished in the Chicago area was 1974, when the Francisco Apartments were demolished in East Garfield Park. There was later in 2004, there was a demolition in Grand Beach, Michigan, next to the Chicago area. Um, so it would be a, it wouldn't be great if it were torn down. Now, what at properties responded when I checked in was we're not pushing this as a teardown. We're, we're the listing says renovate, rehab, expand. Um, but my feeling is there is pressure there to tear it down, nevertheless, because of the the value of the land and that sort of thing. So it's going to be interesting. They they pulled the listing off the public site. Uh, and so when it comes back on the market, if it comes back on the market, we will see if they've changed the language or what has happened. The sellers have owned it for, as far as I can tell, about 50 years. Um, so it's not as, it, it seems likely that they are ready to move. They wouldn't be people who were just saying, oh, let's see if how the market's doing. So I think we'll see it come back on the market and we'll see what happens. And is there any chance that some, I mean, is there any kind of movement around getting a landmark status for it? Nothing can be landmarked involuntarily in Hinsdale. Most, most cities do not allow an involuntary landmark. If these owners have got 50 years in the house and haven't gone for landmarking, are they going to voluntarily get it landmarked today? We don't, I don't know. Sure, so we'll see. Sure. the other possibility is that a buyer, a, a developer buys it, rehabs it, 
you know, expands it in the back and, and touts the Frank Lloyd Wright angle. That, that is also a possibility. Well, there's that. I mean, that's the thing that kind of strikes me about it is this does not look like a Frank Lloyd Wright house. But to me, that's kind of makes it special. This was before he really found his sea legs. He was doing other stuff. And before he kind of had his, you know, signature look. So to me, that this feels kind of collector item-y. It is. Yeah. And it's a, yeah, it's before, I, I knew Frank Lloyd Wright before Frank Lloyd Wright was cool. Exactly. It works out perfectly. You can't quite tell because we didn't have great photos. Um, but on the left side of this image, uh, what, what in this photo sort of looks like a garage door is actually an octagonal room that the house is basically a Dutch colonial on the right. And then it's got this octagonal living room that juts off to the side. It's a white mass in this uh, low quality photo. And what um, the head of the Frank Lloyd Wright Building Conservancy told me is that you see that room almost exactly duplicated later in Frank Lloyd Wright's own home and studio in Oak Park. So there, part of the I knew Frank Lloyd Wright before Frank Lloyd Wright was cool, that piece of it certainly, look, we've got this room that later became the studio where he and many other architects worked. That's so interesting. There's like little fingerprints of his on this house, even though his style wasn't there yet. Exactly. All right, let's go to another house. This one is in Bucktown. It is for sale for just under $2 million, but it has some history. It has some roots here. Tell me about this. You know, I got to say, this was such a fun interview because the sellers both have roots on the South side. She grew up in Northwest Indiana, but they both have roots. He grew up on the South side. They have roots there. And so one of the first things they did, you know, it's a, it's something of a mansion look, but when they moved in, they built a modern version of the stoop. They you know, grew up in neighborhoods or he grew up in a neighborhood where people sat out on the front stoop and kids ran up and down the block, you know, played in the fire hydrant, that sort of thing. Everybody fanned themselves on a hot, humid day. Ice cream man might come by. Somebody's playing music. They're used to stooping. So they put a place to have dinner right in front of the house on Paulina in Bucktown. That was a tribute to Chicago neighborhoods. And they've done other things in the house. They filled it with art by Chicago artists and from the World's Columbian Exposition, our, our great World's Fair. Those, of course, aren't being sold with the house, but it's just sort of this feeling that it's very rooted in Chicago traditions. They have Eastern European heritage and they play polka records. So that's twice in two weeks. I've gotten a chance to mention polka in Crane stories, and I'm thrilled with that. And so this house is for sale for just under $2 million. Just under $2 million. It's not yet on the market. It comes on the market Monday, which is what, August 3rd, I think, August 2nd. Um, this is the kitchen they did, which is so nice. The, the lower cabinets are olive wood, which is, it looks a lot like zebra wood. The upper cabinets are acid etched glass. And then the wall of cabinets on the left where the refrigerators are, it looks like gray flannel. It, it's actually just sort of a gray laminate, but it's this great, I mean, it just, it looks like it could just eat light, just suck in so much light. And one thing you don't see is a cabinet with reeded glass doors. It's just got all these great materials mixed together. You may, there may be one you don't like, but in the composition, they all fit together so well. It's really, I, I like this kitchen a lot. Yeah. If you would have said, okay, we're going to have these dangling fluorescent lights and a flannel looking wall, olive wood lower cabinets, what looks like antique legs on kind of a little Eden kitchen area. I would think no way does all of that match, but altogether it looks so unique and so creative. 
It is. You know, it's kind of an insult now to say that something looks eclectic because it's it's kind of like throwing shade on the place. Oh, it's eclectic because I don't have another word for it. But this is this is eclectic in a positive way. This mixes things together in a way that I think works and you seem to think works, too. It's it's pretty cool. The designer is somebody the designer of the entire interior is somebody I haven't heard of before, works in Las Vegas, um, doesn't have a lot of a website, so I wasn't able to really look at the portfolio, but is a family friend of this couple. And I, I like the work. Um, I'd love to see more houses in Chicago done by this person. I understand from his LinkedIn profile that he's a Loyola grad, so he's got some connection to Chicago. I didn't know eclectic was an insult because people, I don't know, I feel like that's a word that Maybe people used to, I, I've heard that about me, maybe. <laughs> I didn't know they were insulting me. You're such an eclectic person. Oh. Uh, I think real estate or in design, eclectic. <laughs> you know, if somebody lists their house and says, uh, eclectic design, then you think one room's going to be Tuscan, another room's going to look like a log cabin, and the third is going to be contemporary. Sure, which is definitely a thing that happens. Are these people leaving Chicago? What are they doing? They are not. They're downsizing. It's okay. It's a lot of house for the couple. Sure, sure. I was going to say, they have way too much like Chicago stuff. They can't just bail on us and go somewhere else. They got to stay. Yeah, they're going to take all their Chicago stuff and move to Wichita. <laughs> right. Well, let's talk about Ed Dart again. We talked about him last week. Let's talk about him again this week. There's a, an Ed Dart house that is for sale just under $3.9 million on the market, perhaps the first time since it was built in 1964, question mark? As far as I can tell, yeah, it's on the market for the first time since it's, since it was built in 1964. Um, the, it does not appear to have changed hands. The real estate agent wouldn't speak to me, The um, which, as you know, is just one of those things that happens to me all the time. The Lake County public records show no change of, uh, no clear change of ownership since it was built in 1964 for members of the Florsheim family. This is not the Florsheim shoe wing of the family. This is the wing of the family that founded, uh, helped found uh, the Hertz Cab Company and the Chicago Motor Coach Company, which eventually was subsumed by the CTA. But the other, the shoe wing of the Florsheim family also had estates in this part of Lake Forest. Um, West Lake Forest on the, what would the, on the west side of the tollway, where you think you're in Lincolnshire. And some of that Florsheim land is Lincolnshire. But this is a 17 acre estate uh, built in 1964, and as far as I can tell, never never changed hands since then. Built for this this couple, the Florsheims, both of them have passed away. Ed Dart was a great modernist architect who did dozens of houses and churches in the Chicago area, including a house of his own that we just talked about last week that was sold for only the second time since it was built in the 50s. He also led the design team of Water Tower Place. He designed two very notable buildings on Northwestern's campus, Picksteiger Concert Hall and the Norris Student Commons building. Um, but here in 1964, he uses common brick, real beautiful glazed brick for the floors, wood, glass, and that's about it to create this wonderful serene space. Look at all that glass opening out onto your 17 acres where you have a horse paddock, where you have a pool. It really feels like a very, I, I've said serene about 12 times so far. So let's say meditative, tranquil sort of a space. The place it reminds me of, I think we've talked about this, St. Procopius Abbey in Lyle is my favorite building by Ed Dart. It's not everybody's favorite building by Ed Dart. Some people think it's sort of austere, 
but it's similar to this in that it's these very large spaces of brick and it just feels, it feels cool and quiet all the time. And I have the feeling that this house would feel that way as well. There are all kinds of wonderful insets into the walls and, and built-ins. It, it really feels like um, one of the best houses I've seen from 1964. It's a really interesting house. I love the beams in the ceiling. Those wooden ceilings are always so interesting looking, but the beams yeah. in the ceiling seem they almost kind of cascade away to these levels that have that kind of that same color in them. So it looks like there's almost movement there. Oh yeah. Yes. I think movement is definitely the, the idea here. There are um, sets of arched doors where you'd be looking down a hallway and you'd see sort of a, what's called known as an enfilade of doors where it, you can see the light sort of move, light and shadow moving through. There's a, there, I don't know what to call it. There's like a mezzanine inside that is, you might plant it or you might just paint it so that you're looking from one level to a mezzanine, to an unused mezzanine level down below. There are a lot of ways that light and air would feel like they were flowing through the house. But what's so interesting about about Dart's work is that usually when you're looking at something this modern looking and this spacious, it looks kind of kind of austere. I think you said yeah. that word already. But he has done such a good job of bringing natural elements in. I think part of that is that wood on the ceiling, the the placement of windows. You're looking at so much greenery and so many so many natural light sources there that it doesn't feel like this big contemporary house kind of plunked into the middle of the woods. It really looks like, I mean, it has this almost like treehouse quality to it. Yeah. A terrestrial treehouse because it's a yeah. ground level, but yeah, you're absolutely right. It feels like you're out in nature or in a human built piece of nature. Yeah. Well, we shall see what happens to this house. Let us talk about a luxury high rise condo or sorry, a luxury condo at a high rise at number nine Walton that was just recently sold. Tell me about this. Yeah, this one's interesting. This is a, so this is part of that trend of coming back to buying downtown. These particular buyers, I ascertained from the real estate agent already live downtown. So it's not more of that, uh, you know, the, the suburban buyers who weren't willing to come downtown now returning. This was somebody who was there, but this was a, a sale at number nine Walton for $4.12 million. And it is the 38th sale in 2021 at $4 million so far this year. At this point, skip 2020 because 2020 is so weird. At this point in 2019, the last normal year we had, there were 36. So, so far we're running ahead of 2019 for those 4 million and up sales. That's the uppermost end of the market. 14 of those sales have been in downtown Chicago so far this year in these downtown neighborhoods that were so hard hit from 2020's crises. That's 14 so far in 2021 compared to 11 in all of 2020. And that's why I think it's so important to talk about houses that are selling, especially interesting that houses, um, houses and condos that are selling downtown at this level of the market. Yeah. Yeah. People who can afford to buy pretty much anywhere and who may also have bought pretty much anywhere are buying downtown. And, and that's important. Those people, of course, spend money on restaurants and everything else downtown, but it also is a sign that people who can afford to live anywhere do put down a stake in downtown Chicago. Yeah, definitely. Well, we'll keep talking about that topic, I'm sure. So Dennis, what is coming up in the week ahead? Uh, there are a couple of things I'm looking at. There's a townhouse on the market that was built by, designed by William LeBaron Jenny, who is the father of the American skyscraper. And there's also, there was uh, legislation passed in Springfield in early July 
that could transform the way community college students live. It, it, it will make it possible for community colleges to build housing for students who may be sleeping on parents' couches, maybe being pressured at home to get a job instead of studying. It seems as if it will provide more of an immersive approach to education, like if you go to a four-year college or university. Interesting. Well, I will look forward to talking about that next week with you. Thanks so much, Dennis. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, Chicago-based McDonald's outpaces Wall Street estimates. Second quarter sales show that the chain has performed well during the pandemic, underpinned by drive-through orders, carry-out, and increasingly delivery. But labor challenges linger. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Here's a great way to stay in touch with Crane's Daily Gist. Subscribe to the Crane's Morning 10. It's our daily newsletter featuring the 10 biggest stories of the day. To subscribe, visit chicagobusiness.com slash morning 10. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. In a last-minute bid to derail a project that finally appears to have gained a great deal of momentum, opponents of the proposed Obama Presidential Center in Jackson Park have released representations of how a reimagined center might instead be built elsewhere on the south side. The artist's renditions are only an idea for how the center and an adjacent parking structure could be built just east of Washington Park, on land mostly owned by the city and University of Chicago that previously had been pitched to the Obama Foundation. In a statement, the foundation rejected the idea of switching locations at this point, something that would further delay construction that now is set to start in September after more than three years of legal and political battles. But Protect Our Parks, which has filed a suit in U.S. District Court here to block the Jackson Park site, says it wants to demonstrate that alternatives are available. The group's attorney in an interview said this is a citywide, not just a neighborhood issue. He continued by saying that there's no reason to risk what he described as irreparable harm to Jackson Park if an alternative is available. The foundation denies that any harm will be done. It also says the proposed $700 million project will actually improve Jackson Park while stimulating $3.1 billion in economic activity in Hyde Park and nearby neighborhoods. In any case, final briefs for this case are due in federal court this week. A final ruling in Protect Our Park's request for an injunction blocking construction could potentially follow any time after that. Kirkland & Ellis is close to finalizing the largest downtown Chicago office lease in years, looking to move to the 60-story Salesforce Tower that's under construction at Wolf Point. The firm is in advanced talks to lease nearly 600,000 square feet at the tower, where it would move from its current office just a bit more than a block east at 300 North LaSalle. That according to sources familiar with the negotiations. Danny Ecker is reporting the story in detail for Cranes. If Kirkland finalizes this deal, it's interesting for a couple reasons. One is that it would be a huge new commitment to physical office real estate, which you just don't see as much of as many companies still try to grasp what their long-term workspace needs are um, after adjusting to having many remote workers. So the firm would be making quite a statement here that it is an in-person operation, possibly just as much as it ever was before COVID. And then secondly, Kirkland would be leaving a really nice building uh, in 300 North LaSalle. This is space that was effectively built with the firm in mind as its anchor tenant. 
And the tower is just 12 years old. I mean, this is not Bank of America or BMO Harris leaving behind really old space on LaSalle Street for new towers. Um, we don't know how the terms of staying versus relocating compare, but when you have a company trying to reconfigure its space, maybe adding more collaboration space as opposed to individual offices because more people could be working from home more frequently in the future, it can be a complicated and costly and annoying thing to undertake. So here we have a firm that seems to be saying they want an even newer building to be able to start with a clean slate on which it can draw out an entirely new plan for how it wants to use workspace. Chicago software startup Logigate, which makes software to help companies manage risks in everything from their tech to their vendor networks, has raised $113 million. The deal, led by Boston-based PSG Equity, will help the company to expand internationally and double its number of workers to about 350 people in the next year to year and a half. Logigate is one of at least 10 Chicago companies that have raised more than $100 million this year. Twice the number of nine-figure deals done in all of 2020, that according to PitchBook. Chicago-based McDonald's posted sales that beat analysts' estimates as U.S. customers proved willing to pay higher prices and as international markets saw fewer pandemic-related closures. Comparable store sales rose almost 41% worldwide from a year earlier, outpacing the 39% gain that analysts expected. McDonald's also beat Wall Street projections in the U.S. and in international markets. McDonald's said that online and mobile orders in its top six markets climbed 70% year-to-date. In the U.S., where McDonald's has nearly 14,000 locations, sales were boosted by a new chicken sandwich. A new celebrity meal offering, chosen this time by South Korean boy band BTS, also increased sales around the world. Overall, sales rose 57% to $5.89 billion in the quarter, while adjusted earnings increased to $2.37 a share, exceeding analysts' projections of $2.11 per share. And that's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Our continuous news feed lives at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to our guest today, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. Be sure to subscribe to these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your audio on demand. And find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening. Listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.